Our show focuses on social, ethical, spiritual, and faith issues from a progressive Christian perspective. We have named our new show Counterbalance because we seek to counterbalance more conservative Christian perspectives on other radio and television shows. I'm Richard Randolph, one of the co-hosts for Counterbalance. And I'm Beth Menhusen, your other co-host for Counterbalance. Both Richard and I are pastors at Christ and Connection Point United Methodist Church here in Lincoln. One church in two locations with two different personalities, but a shared commitment to acting inclusively, seeking God, serving others, and doing justice. That's right. At Christ Connection Point, we strive to welcome, include, and affirm all persons regardless of their ethnicity, economic class, or sexual orientation. We recognize that all persons are created in the image of God and loved by God for who they are. For more information about our church, please visit ChristUMCLINC.org. Or ConnectionPointLNK.org. Richard, our focus today is the ongoing uh, controversy within our United Methodist (coughs) denomination concerning human sexuality. So the United Methodists are trying to determine uh, whether we will allow our clergy to officiate at same-sex weddings um, and whether United Methodist churches can host same-sex weddings. That's right, Beth. And another issue for United Methodists concerns whether LGBTQ plus persons can be ordained as clergy within the church. Joining us for this discussion are Dr. Barbara Lukert and Reverend Lee Johnson, both United Methodist, they agree that in order to resolve this conflict, the United Methodist Church needs to take into consideration recent science discoveries into the development of human sexuality. I'm really excited about our conversation today, but we would also really like to hear from our, vi- our listeners on this crucial topic. Right, Richard. We'd be very interested in hearing our listeners' questions and comments. There's several ways to share your thoughts. You can call into KZUM at 402-474-5086, extension 1. If you have a contribution but do not want to go on the air, you can call in and talk with either Richard or me off the air, and we'll go on the air and share a summary of your thoughts with our listeners. Our listeners can also message us uh, questions on Facebook by just going to the Counterbalance KZUM Facebook page. And we have a Twitter account at CB Radio KZUM. Uh, Beth, before we get to our guests this morning, we should probably discuss one important feature of United Methodist theology. Right, Richard. Uh, And that would be the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Um, So it's important in general to being United Methodist. And I understand that it's especially important to the perspective that our guests are bringing today. Um, Could you provide our listeners with just a, a brief background on what we mean by the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Sure, Beth. Um, So the Wesleyan quadrilateral is really a way of thinking about how God can speak to, can speak to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called um, Wesleyan because it comes from the theology and um, the sermons of uh, John Wesley, who was an 18th century um, English reformer within the the Church of England. Um, and John Wesley is the founder of, um, of United Methodism as a, as a denomination. Uh, the quadrilateral uh, aspect refers to four sources of um, authority for Wesley, four ways in which he believed that God could speak to human persons. 
The first and the most important um, method is through the Holy Scriptures, through the Bible. Um, so Wesley believed that the Bible was um, the inspired word of God and that the, our primary way of understanding who God is and understanding um, what God intends for us to uh, be and how God intends for us to live our lives uh, was through the Holy Scriptures. But he also believed that there were other ways in which God might speak to us. Um, another way would be uh, what Wesley called tradition, which would be the writings and reflections of Christians uh, after the closing of the canon. So uh, that would be individuals who were writing um, church fathers and, and, and mothers, uh, individuals like um, uh, the, the theologians uh, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, uh, today, in in the 21st century, looking back upon Wesley, who lived in the uh, in the uh, 1700s, uh, we would say that Wesley would be a part of that tradition. Mm -hmm. um, a, a third source of authority for uh, Wesley was what he called experience, which would be, in other words, God could speak to us through our experiences and. For Wesley, that was a, a broad uh, understanding of what experience was. It might be your individual experiences in life. Uh, it might be your experience of uh, God speaking to you when you were out on a walk through nature. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be the experience of the gathered community of faith, um, either historically or in a particular moment. Um, other experiences included uh, science. Uh, Wesley believed that God could speak to us through science, and he, he categorized that as, uh, as an experience because um, in Wesley's day, the way you did science was you looked through a microscope or a telescope, mm -hmm. and so you used uh, your, your five senses. Um, the fourth, um, the fourth uh, source of authority for Wesley was our reason. Uh, Wesley believed that we uh, were created as rational be uh, beings by God for a purpose and that God intended for us to use our, our reason um, in order to discern God's will for us in life and in order to discern God's uh, presence, uh, ongoing presence in our lives and, and in, in our world. So um, these are four different um, sources of authority or sources through which God can speak to uh, the faithful Christian, and indeed to all persons. Um, Wesley himself did not use the term the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It was uh, suggested uh, by a Wesleyan theologian uh, back in the 1960s, uh, Albert Altler, who was a professor uh, at uh, Perkins School of Theology in Dallas. Uh, but it seemed to resonate with uh, Methodist scholars, and so now we, we sort of all have uh, taken that on and uh, look upon that as um, a method for doing uh, theology. Mm -hmm. So uh, scripture is always foremost. It's always the most important of the sources of authority. But Wesley understood that God was not limited just to scripture mm -hmm. and that God could speak to us in, um, in, in these different, uh, different ways. And so... Um, that's uh, our understanding of how theology should be done and what sources of authority we should, uh, we should uh, rely on. Mm -hmm. So um, today we have uh, two guests with us, um, Dr. Barbara Luckert um, is professor of medicine emeriti 
from the University of Kansas School of Medicine in Kansas City, Kansas. She practiced uh, endocrinology at the university for over 35 year, over 30 years, and uh, she is a member of Asbury United Methodist Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, joining uh, Dr. Lukard is uh, Reverend Lee Johnson. Uh, Lee has been in ministry for more than 30 years. Uh, he is ordained uh, in the United Methodist Church and currently serves as Minister of Congregational Care at Asbury United Methodist Church in Prairie Village. And uh, also, just incidentally, uh, Lee uh, grew up here in Lincoln and uh, attended um, our church, uh, Christ United Methodist Church. And um, he is a proud graduate of Lincoln High School Mm -hmm. and uh, the University of Nebraska at, uh, at Lincoln. So... Barbara and uh, Lee, welcome to Counterbalance. Can you hear us? Thankful to be here. There we go, I think. There we go. Okay. Lee, it's good to hear you. And Barbara, it's good to have you as well. Um, So uh, we just want to dive into this uh, topic because uh, it's really been important in the over the last 50 years for the United Methodist Church, as well as some other uh, Protestant denominations. And um, I think that uh, the two of you in some writing that you've done um, have uh, made an important argument, and that is that the United Methodist Church, uh, when it comes to human sexuality, has basically abandoned the Wesleyan quadrilateral and that this, um, they, we as a church abandoned that fairly early in our discussion about uh, human sexuality. Can you give our listeners a brief historical overview of, of these discussions that have been going on for nearly 50 years and explain what the implications were for, for ignoring uh, science and, and uh, also reason? Well, the, in 1972, so about 47 years ago at the General Conference. And the General Conference is uh, a group of United Methodists worldwide that that meet every four years uh, to decide for the next four years how we're going to be United Methodists. And so uh, in 1972, for some reason, and I'm not exactly sure, but uh, homosexuality became a discussion topic at the 1972 General Conference, and that was held in Atlanta. And so the words uh, were added that uh, the United Methodist Church declared that homosexuality was, and I quote, incompatible uh, with Christian teaching. And so, which is kind of interesting when you really think about it, because if you uh, go through Christian teaching, whatever that would be in, in Scripture, uh, homosexuality is, isn't even mentioned in that way. It's right. nothing that anybody taught about, and so, uh, but it was com- it was declared that it was incompatible, and so, um, and that was put in what was called our United Methodist Book of Discipline, and our United Methodist Book of Discipline um, is um, our rules, so to speak, our orthodoxy of of who we're going to be um, in relationship as United Methodists. And so after doing so, um, the the delegates also voted that for the next four years, they were going to conduct a a study of homosexuality. 
and they were going to return to the discussion in 1976. Well, um, they returned to the discussion, and, and for the next, for each quadrennium is what we call it, uh, they continued to affirm, the group continued to affirm that homosexuality uh, is incompatible uh, with Christian teaching. And so in 1988, uh, the General Conference decided that they, they they mandated that there must be a study this time, and that this study was to report back in in 1992. And so they had a committee. There was a 24 member committee uh, over the next four years. They met each eight times, and they did just what you said, Richard. They engaged in uh, the Methodist tradition, the quadrilateral of. of of trying to discern more about homosexuality. And so that meant that they, you know, they engaged in scripture, they engaged in experience, they engaged um, in, in tradition, and they engaged in reason. And so if they engaged in reason, that meant that they engaged in science. And um, so they um, had this study for, for those four years, uh, but what they determined when it came to science, what they determined was uh, evidence, whatever evidence was at that time, right. this is in, you know, between 1988 and 1992, uh, that it was inconclusive, that they had hoped to, the, the, the study says we had hoped to find an answer. Um, and But what we found was it's inconclusive. And so uh, with that, in 19, between 19... 88 and 1992, science then became left out of the discussion, and we have never, ever returned to it. So, I mean, you, I'm not good at math, because I went to Lincoln High and, and didn't learn math. <laughs> now, now. <laughs> but, um, but you can, you know, 1992, so we're 25 years from that, and, and we all know uh, much more has been discovered uh, scientifically about homosexuality, uh, but we have not re-engaged a discussion uh, with what has been discovered. Instead, we've decided that we're going to have a moral discussion uh, within our church <clears throat> as though um, people wake up in the morning and said, gosh, today, I think today I'm going to choose to be gay or I'm going to choose to be homosexual. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's where we've left it and and um to be honest i mean i it's embarrassing it's embarrassing that, mm-hmm. that we haven't returned to reason and and to science and it's embarrassing that we've continued to ignore this well, absolutely. absolutely you know um i've done a, a little ethics in my life um and um i've always thought that science should inform ethical decisions anyway. Um, Your claim, and I think that it's accurate, is that um, after the 1988 study, uh, when they determined that, um, I guess, science science was inconclusive on this particular uh, topic, and therefore they abandoned science um, and um, also reason and focused just on um, scripture and tradition, um, for me, that, that begs a couple of questions. Uh, first is, um, we did a show uh, here on Counterbalance a couple of months ago in which we went over the, the six most prominent verses which purport to 
um, uh, to um, exclude or to con- condemn uh, homosexuality. And um, our arg- argument as a part of that show was that these verses have been misinterpreted and that if you get the, that uh, if you see these verses as condemning homosexuality, then you really have done only a shallow study of those particular passages of Scripture. And, and so um, that's something that we've, we've done er, early on, and it's, um, um, I thought it was a r- really important show that we did. But the other thing is that science needs to, to be incorporated into um, ethics, I would say, uh, particularly when you get into areas like um, bioethics, uh, either environmental ethics or medical ethics. Um, so it's sort of crazy to, to say, well, we, we're going to do an ethical, uh, take an ethical position based on scripture um, and tradition, but we're not going to look at any of the science uh, informing that particular is- issue. It's just, uh, that's just poor Poor ethics, uh, in in my perspective. Sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox there. No, I, we're we're not disagreeing with you here. <laughs> right. Um, so it's an interesting analysis of what's. And I don't happened. think John Wesley would disagree with you either. I don't think he would. No. No. So there um, might be a bishop or two that would disagree with you. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> could uh, Lee or uh, Barbara? Could you describe for us and our listeners? Some of the the new scientific discoveries uh, that you believe should inform the United Methodist Church's policies on human sexuality. Um, so, like going all the way back to the Kinsey report, talking about genetics. You know, what does that scientific evidence look like? Yes, thank you for giving us that opportunity. Um, the interest of behavioral and um, biologic and molecular scientists. Uh, really started taking off in 1948 after Kinsey's report was published. Kinsey published the largest study of sexual behavior that uh, in existence even to today. And um, he found that there's a huge spectrum, a, a wide spectrum of sexual behavior. People aren't either just homosexual or heterosexual. There's a whole spectrum in between some people who can be attracted to either uh, their same sex or the opposite sex mm-hmm. to people who would never consider any sort of sexual relationship with people their same sex and those who would only uh, consider that's the only thing that they would consider. So at that time then people began to think well maybe we need to look into what it is that controls the development of sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they began looking first at animal observations and found that over a thousand species of animals have uh, same-sex pairings. Um, so it's certainly very common in the natural world. Uh, studies were done across cultures and, and found that in nearly every culture they looked at, there were uh, a certain percentage of, of people who were homosexual. So with the development of uh, the world of biologic science, when the techniques became um, more usable, um, there was, there was, this was looked at from the anatomical um, and hormonal influences uh, on sexuality. As it's been noted then that uh, the development of sexual orientation occurs prenatally. It occurs while the fetus is developing in the uterus and is influenced by the hormonal concentrations, 
that the area of the brain that controls um, sexual orientation is exposed to. This is called, it's a very fancy um, very fancy term that I want everybody to go home today and say that they learned about this, the sexually dimorphic nucleus of the preoptic area of the brain. It's a very small area which would be just right above the roof of the mouth. And in animals, they've they shown that if you give uh, the pregnant uh, rat, say, um, testosterone during development, the males that, that come out of that development uh, will have a normal, what we would call a heterosexual attraction, that is, they'll be attracted to females. But if the those uh, developing fetuses are deprived of testosterone so that they don't have the effect of testosterone on that area of the brain, they will develop an attraction to other males, which would be called a female uh, orientation. We also know that there are genetic components. Uh, we know that from, first of all, from observations that um, there are certain inheritance patterns that seem to be prevalent, um, in the, among those being that if a boy is gay, there's a 20 to 25% likelihood of his brothers being gay. And similarly, lesbian women have a greater probability of having a lesbian sister. And it's been shown that if an identical twin is gay, there's a 65% chance that his twin brother will be gay. So there were all these um, implications by observation, but just last week there was a a paper published in Science uh, where they did a study of 490,000 individuals who had had genetic testing Mm -hmm. uh, for various reasons, uh, really throughout the globe. And they did identify a number of genes that were associated with uh, homosexual behavior. And there are probably multiple other ones that will be discovered, but I think there's very little doubt now that there is a genetic component. But by far the most important um, factor seems to be the hormonal concentration at the time of fetal development. So sexual orientation is actually determined before birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, I think that removes the the uh, belief that this is just simply a choice. Right, and it it switches the. I mean the 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 conditions of the argument. I think that's been going on uh, in the United Methodist Church and in other Christian churches uh, for you know the last fifty years. Um, because, as Lee mentioned earlier. Um, by excluding all of this scientific evidence, um, we've been we've been having a moral argument uh, about whether or not homosexuality is moral. And I think Correct. what you know what mm-hmm. you're saying is that the science is showing that it's a it's a genetic and a um, endocrinological. I don't think that's a word. <laughs> I don't, it's a fact. I mean, it's it's a fact that people are people, uh, you know, develop uh, this way. You know, in utero. Um, that it that it's not a choice, um, and so then the question isn't is this right or wrong? Um, it becomes it, it's it's a fact of exist of existence, and how do we um, how do we include uh, everyone in our communities? Um, and, you know, and, and the how American, does uh, the American Psychiatric Association, you know, um, took this stand too in 1972 when they removed homosexuality 
from its list of mental disorders. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting that was the same year that the United Methodists put the uh, restrictive language in the Book of Discipline. That is, oh, interesting. that is interesting. But they felt that in 19, even in 1972, the American Psychiatric Association felt that the the data was strong enough to say that this was a spectrum of behavior and it was normal and certainly was not a disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to just piggyback on something you said, yeah. Beth, about moral or ethical uh, deliberations. If you're not incorporating science, it's bad ethics. Oh, yeah. Uh, whether it's religious ethics or philosophical ethics, it's just bad uh, ethics. Um, so um, just to continuing the conversation uh, with Lee and Barbara, um, these um, scientific results um, should uh, call into question uh, conversion therapies, right? I mean, we um, had... Um, report earlier this week that one of the major, um, what would you say, Beth? Founders, Founders. of a main conversion therapy program uh, came out as, as gay. Right. So what's currently... And ha- asked for forgiveness. Yeah. And asked for forgiveness for the work that he had done. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I saw that in the article where he said, please forgive me for any injury I, has, I have caused to anybody because of conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. Which is a, a lot. Of, of damage. Yeah. So the, the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the most important journals in the medical field, uh, had an article just a few weeks ago uh, condemning conversion therapy and talking about how much harm is done, and and we're hopeful that this would be uh, outlawed th- throughout the world, essentially, because mm-hmm. it increases the suicide rate, causes people to have post-traumatic syndrome, um, so it's a very painful and uh, cruel uh, undertaking. Yes, currently 17 states, um, and I think the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico right. all have laws on their uh, books um, a, prohibiting conversion therapy for anybody under 18 to be practiced in, in that state. And, and I would know that uh, the unicameral Nebraska, I would encourage them to be the 18th. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. That would be great. So uh, basically conversion therapy from a, the perspective of science has been completely discredited. Um, and um, it's actually been revealed that it's actually harmful to people who are uh, who choose or are forced to go to go through it, and could you just Barbara just say a little bit about the types of harm that conversion therapy um, uh, causes? Well, I think that you know it just increases the guilt that people have already been uh, suffering from, and I think the the biggest problem is the post traumatic syndrome. I mean, it's it's as serious as some people come out of a war, you know, I mean, you're trying to change, you're trying to change a behavior that is basically part of your being, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so it causes great emotional turmoil. You know, I, um, I'm, I'm left-handed, I'm left-handed, and uh, I'm, a, I'm the most left-handed person that God ever invented, and when I was in third grade, I wanted to turn my paper and write in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And uh, my teacher, God bless her, decided that I should turn the paper the other way. 
And it caused so much distress to me that I actually one day uh, fainted in third grade. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, I just got up. I fainted twice in my life, and once was in third grade when I had to turn my, my page and slant it in a different way. And I said, I can't do that. I cannot do that. And so I, I can understand if that was the stress that uh, having to turn my paper in a certain way caused me. I can only imagine what conversion therapy and the stress must be like um, for somebody who has gone through that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we're coming up on, <clears throat> on time for uh, a station break. And... Um, uh, when we come back, um, Lee and Barbara, we want to. We've been talking about United Methodist and the travails that United Methodist have been going through over this issue. It's been a controversy that, at this point, threatens to um, divide the the denomination. Um, but when we come back, we want to talk about if um, for our non United Methodist listeners, what what sort of lessons can be learned. Uh, for just Christians in general about the experience that the United Methodist Church has has been going through. And um, just want to remind everybody that uh, you're listening to Counterbalance, a progressive Christian uh, perspectives here on KZUM. And uh, we are interested in your calls and your thoughts um, on our topic today. Um, So if you'd like to call in, please call 402-474-474. 5086 and uh, choose extension one. Uh, you can also uh, reach out with a comment or question on our uh, Facebook page, uh, Counterbalance KZUM uh, Facebook, or uh, on Twitter at CB Radio KZUM. So uh, we encourage um, our listeners to give us a call with thoughts or comments or questions. And uh, now we'll be taking um, a quick break. Welcome back to Counterbalance here on KZUM Lincoln. Uh, I just want to remind all of our listeners that our fall fun drive here on KZUM is next week, September 10th through the 16th. You can help KZUM close the gap on raising $300,000 that we need to secure our grant from the CPB. Uh, $40,000, though, is our goal for for this particular fun drive. Uh, We're hoping that we can knock it out early here in Lincoln. Uh, You can call... uh, 402-474-5086, extension 1, or go to kzum.org now if you want to help kick that that goal early. Um, So that'll be fun next week. You'll hear some different things here on the station, some guests on shows. Uh, Fun Drive Week is always a fun time. Uh, So we have that to look forward to. Uh, Here on Counterbalance this morning, we are talking uh, about the science of human sexuality. Uh, We have some guests with us from Kansas. Uh, Let's let's continue our conversation. I actually live in Missouri. Oh, Missouri. (laughs) Oh, well. Barbara lives in Kansas, but I live on the I live on the right side of the state. Well, we Uh, let him come in. They let me come in. Okay, you may live in Missouri, but you're a Nebraskan at heart. I know you well enough. I am. Right? I am. That's it. That's it. <laughs> so um, we've been talking about um, uh, scripture, science, and, and human sexuality uh, this morning with uh, Lee Johnson and uh, uh, Dr. Barbara Luker. And uh, we, uh, we paused for the break. We were um, thinking about, we've been focusing so far this morning on 
the United Methodist uh, experience uh, with this controversy, especially over the last 12 months, how it seems to be literally ripping the denomination apart. And uh, so I'm wondering, uh, Barbara and Lee, do you think there are lessons that other uh, Christians um, who are not United Methodist but belong to another denomination, are, are there lessons here for the entire Christian um, faith uh, community? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I think um, we, we need to get over the idea that religion and science are uh, diametrically appro- opposed to each other because they have very different uh, roles. Uh, the, the role of science is to help uncover and discover creation, essentially. We try, we're, the role of science is to try to understand how the universe works right. and how we can best interact with the universe. The church, on the other hand, I think has a great role in, in influencing society as to how we live, to helping determine how we live so that we can be in synchrony with the universe and always be preserving and making the most of creation. Right. And as far as homosexuality is concerned, I think this would tell us that since uh, homosexuality is part of God's diversity of creation, that we should help people who have homosexual orientation live the fullest and most productive <laughs> lives that they possibly can. Right. Uh, that I think, and the other thing, I think you you take what Barbara has said, and then you, you you pair that with our faith story, our story, and and our story that's in the very beginning that talks about God's creative work, and so I think some of the most um, insightful piece of scripture that's helpful for me is occurs right there in Genesis one. Genesis 1, 26, 27, that tells you that God, in, in the story of creation, that God creates humanity in God's image. And right. so we are all image bearers of, of God, whomever we are. Mm-hmm. I know. All the other thing that's um, uh, really affirming, I think, in Genesis 1 is, you know, God creates and calls it good. Um, you know, I, yeah. I mean, how many times does, does mm-hmm. God use the word good? Right. Seven. You know, I, that would be Seven a, that's a rhetorical <laughs> Thank question. Thank you, Richard. A lot. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So uh, I think these are um, important um, insights uh, that everybody can learn from the uh, this trauma that the United Methodist denomination is, is going through. Um, it's very good, uh, very good um, and very helpful. Thank you. Um, Listen, I want to talk... Um, the other thing to note is that other denominations have have had this discussion, mm-hmm. and uh, the Presbyterians have had the discussion, the Episcopalians have had and certainly the, uh, the ELCA folks have, yeah. have had this discussion, too. Right. And yeah. I, I believe all three in all three of those instances, a schism occurred, did it not? I know it did for uh, the Presbyterians and Lutherans. I don't um, know about the Episcopalians. The, in the ELCA, the the Lutheran Church left it in the hands of the local congregation, mm-hmm. and I, I don't, I don't, but I don't know what, what if there is a schism within the denomination that occurred. Right, I think there is. I'm, I'm basing that on what my cousin told me, who's a Lutheran and is yeah. no longer an ELCA uh, Lutheran. So, 
Hey, listen, I want to talk um, a little bit also about um, so um, about how our understanding of human sexuality uh, has been growing and um, um, we are understanding more and more. So um, what I'm getting at here is that, um, you know, when the United Methodist Church first began these discussions uh, almost 50 years ago, it focused pretty much exclusively on gay men and lesbian women. Um, but more recently, we've seen the emergence of, of other forms of sexuality, such as persons who are transgendered, uh, bisexual, or pansexual, or um, different variations. So what do you think the implications of these other forms of human sexuality have or, or will have on the discussion within the United Methodist Church about uh, about policy and uh, about uh, what's up moral and what's not uh, moral. I think uh, the research on uh, transgender issues is is much newer than that on uh, homosexuality, but it is evolving. And the general belief among people, uh, particularly behavioral scientists who are studying transgenders, feel that uh, this is also predetermined, that there are children as young as two or three years old who who realize that they are not, they're not the, the they're born into a body that doesn't uh, sync with what they, how they see themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of studies being done on the hormonal um, changes or differences uh, and also on... Um, some of the genetic influences on the development of sexual identification as opposed to sexual orientation or people who are tra- uh, transgender. There's a very large group at the um, Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, that um, uh, follows two, over 200 transgender children, and they are also doing a lot of research in this area. And I think this is going to evolve, too, so that we'll have a better understanding of the, what factors are involved in determining who's going to be transgender, have a different sexual identification. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, well, Richard, what the question brings up for me, um, I think as we discuss these topics as, you know, a denomination, um, we, I think we need to seize the chance that we have coming up this summer at the next general conference to make um, the language that we use as open as possible, because otherwise we're, we're going to end up arguing again, um, you know, about, well, you know, the language that we changed the language in, you know, 2020 to, to include gay and lesbian people. But what about, you know, bisexual people? What about transgender people? And I, I can just see that happening, you know, splitting hairs like that down the road. And I think, um, you know, given all of these other identities, um, you know, the gen- gender issues, which are separate from, you know, sexual identity issues, um, I think we just, we need to, I mean, one option is to just eliminate the language altogether. Just, you know, why yeah. why talk about homosexuality or, you know, gender identity at all? We love and affirm everybody. Um, yeah. Or to, or I guess we could start a laundry list of of things, of identities that we affirm, but, yeah. but I think... I certainly agree with that. Yeah, why should you single this this, this particular group out? And, mm-hmm. and we, there's, 
there's no way we can list every variation, you know. Right. <laughs> and so I certainly agree with you. It needs to be probably just eliminate the, the language. I, I'm not sure you could make it broad enough, you know. Right. We'd have to continue going back every four years and yeah, amend it by addition. Which is what we don't want to and do. And creating yeah. more and more convoluted um, sentences in the discipline, mm-hmm. uh, which is, there's enough of convolution in that book already. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, so that this this conversation in the United Methodist Church began when it was pretty, I mean, it was pretty simple. It was homosexuality or heterosexuality. Or so we thought, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the issues were that's mm-hmm. what we thought, but now we're be, as as we're learning more and more about human sexuality, we're we're just seeing what um you know I would say a rich tapestry mm-hmm. of diversity exists, and uh, I think um, I think you've persuaded me that we ought to just l- eliminate all of that that mm-hmm. type of of language, and um, so um, it's a. Uh, this is not sort of a one question. It's it's an evolving question as our understanding uh, advances. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, Lee and, and Barbara, let's. Um, um, what I'd like to do is just to ask you. You say in your article <clears throat> that we need to reframe the question. So, um, how how should the United Methodist Church? Um, let me let me qualify that. How how would a an enlightened United Methodist Church um, reframe these issues? Would it be just eliminating the language altogether, or um, what, what 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 do you think about that? Well, I think part of what we're saying is we need to reframe it beyond a moral conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, so, and I think that, that's part of what we're trying to say, is, is trying to give people some different language, the language of science, and trying to integrate that language of science with, with um, an understanding of our faith, because I think the two can be integrated, and, and to reframe the question in that way, and, and to help people do that. Barbara and I, we, we've talked about this, and and we're, we're um, going around Nebraska and Kansas uh, over the next couple months, and we're presenting our work to different congregations. And um, in trying to reframe the question, I'm going to be really upfront with folks. I'm going to say, I am not, uh, we are not doing this to change your heart, because I, I don't think I can change people's hearts, uh, but we are doing this to change your mind. Mm-hmm. And I think if, and we really are. We're trying to lay out code. Just we're we're trying to lay out information that I think is helpful, and and to change people's minds. And it's the mind then I I, I trust that the mind will then work upon the heart. And I think right. that's how this happened in in this process. You know, people who have uh, been so homophobic. In, in their lives, all of a sudden discover that somebody in their family that they've loved all along um, is is gay or lesbian or, or transgendered, and, and, and then they think, well, um, their mind says, if, if I've loved them, you know, then their, their heart then catches up with their mind. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to reframe it in that way. It's very, it's been very discouraging that we've, we tried hard to get the uh, commission on the way forward to look at the scientific evidence, and they said they had too many issues to deal with. Yeah. Mm. And then we've tried to get 
some of the leadership of some of the other movements that are in progress to try to consider the scientific um, even we even offered to to supply them we, we could recommend people who are experts in this field to help them but there just wasn't an interest in that it yeah. it, it was as you said decided to just make it a moral question and yeah and i was i was i was I, I asked, uh, the, we had a commission on a way forward that, that studied this, because we study things in our church for the last four years, and I actually asked several commission members uh, a year ago, I said, what scientific evidence have, have you discussed, is, uh, have you brought forward to the commission? And the answer is none. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it just makes me really sad uh, to think that's what we've done to each other. Right. So, uh, was any when you asked these commission members, did they give you a reason, or they just say none, and that was it? They said they had so many issues, but they just continue going over the same issues, always scripture, and it's the same. Because actually, it seems to me that homosexuality isn't really the issue totally. It's interpretation of scripture. Right. You know, there's there's a... um, there's a meeting in a couple of weeks uh, of, of United Methodists here in Kansas City uh, on this subject of homosexuality and, and how to move forward. And um, we, we offered, we offered, we'd love to come out and speak. And, and um, again, um, never heard back. And But then when you look at the agenda, they brought in a speaker who uh, is going to help people understand how to have difficult conversations. Well, here's the thing, and Barbara pointed out this to me uh, when she read that. If you're going to have a difficult conversation, don't you want all of the information uh, to use so you can have that difficult conversation? Mm -hmm. One would Uh, think. And that's really what, what we're trying to help people understand. Right. I want to go back to a point that Barbara made uh, about, uh, Barbara, I agree with you. I think this is about more than just um, human sexuality. I think um, a deeper issue here is sort of the role of Scripture in our uh, individual and communal lives. And, um, you know, how do we interpret it and how do we apply it? Um, I I think that... um, the appropriate use of scripture and science um, is important for a number of issues that are are sort of uh, on the horizon. For example, uh, climate change um, is an important issue, which um, I think that the, the United Methodist Church has, um, has failed to take a prophetic stance on, um, even though it's clear that um, in our teachings, beginning with Genesis 1, that passage that uh, I think it was Lee referred to er- earlier, uh, humans are given a special privilege and responsibility to be created in God's image, and that, that re- responsibility is to care for creation, and to be good stewards of creation. So um, I do think that this issue goes beyond just human sexuality, and that at, at, underneath that, at, at sort of the heart of the matter is how does the Bible continue to be our sacred source, a source of authority um, when we're faced with these issues uh, such as climate change that um, 
need so much scientific um, information uh, in order to uh, even address the issue. Um, can you speak more on that, uh, Barbara? Craig, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, we the uh, predictions about what's going to happen if we don't pay more attention to environmental issues uh, are pretty frightening. And the, the church has been pretty silent on this. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, some people said we need to adopt the ancient uh, Native American tradition saying that every decision we make should be made on the basis of what, how it will affect the seventh generation from now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's, a, you know, a great wisdom that we need to pay attention to, uh, and we certainly need to have more emphasis. Actually, that's the emphasis of our Church and Society Committee here at Asbury for the next year is uh, of trying to increase our understanding of uh, taking care of the environment. Right. So I, I think um, this raises uh, the, the question of how um, of um, how the, to um, integrate scientific discoveries uh, with biblical teachings. Are there points or times when scientific discoveries um, should always take precedence over? The Bible, um, and so what cr- criteria even would you use to determine uh, when scientific discoveries are applicable to uh, our understanding of Scripture and its teachings? Any thoughts there? Well, it's, I think it's that's a difficult interaction that we haven't been good at. But there's so much, there's such a great difference in the approach that the the approach of religion tends to be. This is this is what we believe, you know, and, and, and the approach of science is more, well, this is what we think we believe, but we're going to test this in a way with experimentation to see if, if our hypothesis is really valid. Right. So I believe those two can work together, though, if the scientists can say, this is what we see is what's for the environment, for example. This is what we see will happen if we don't change what we're doing. And then the church trying to figure out how this relates to what we're um, what we're told about how to live in the Bible, and certainly dominion over creation probably means taking care of creation, also. Yeah, I, and, and I don't think that God has um, stopped revealing God's self to right. us. That, that, and, and so God, I think God reveals God's self to us in scientific discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that rev- right, yeah. yeah, that revelation continues. And mm-hmm. and Barbara's the the word dominion I think is used. Um, I think that's in the second creation story, and and humanity is given dominion over um, cr- the creation that God has has handiwork. But dominion doesn't mean that you lord something over somebody. Dominion uh, in that sense means to care. That's right. For creation. And and then so God reveals God's self. You better, you know, God's saying, you better get going and care for what I've been doing. Right. Yeah, I think most good scientists think, see themselves as people who are trying to uncover God's revelation about the world and 
and how it is exi- how it exists and how it's put together. Mm-hmm. Right. Good. Good points there. Um. So um, we've been talking with um, Barbara Leckert and Lee Johnson about uh, work that they've been doing within the United Methodist Church. Um, urging uh, the United Methodists to take into account um, scientific uh, studies uh, about human sexuality as the, the church struggles to come up with um, a policies uh, that uh, can be uh, 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 unifying and that are appropriate uh, for questions of, of human sexuality. And uh, this seems to have inevitably led us into a discussion on science and, and religion. religion. Yep. So, um, tell us a little bit, Lee and Barbara, about uh, your plans moving forward. Um, you mentioned that you're doing some speaking. Uh, you're, uh, I will say that uh, Lee and Barbara are coming later this fall to uh, Christ United Methodist Church uh, here in Lincoln uh, to do a presentation. Um, what, what do you see over the next six months, and are you optimistic or pessimistic about what will happen uh, at the next general conference, which is in um, in May of 2020. Well, we're for the next couple of months. Uh, we will be coming up to Lincoln on October the 7th, but we're also going over to a church in Topeka where we're speaking. We're going down to the Wichita area uh, to speak, and and we're also uh, having a, a similar conversation here at our home church at Asbury in Prairie Village, and we're open to going other places too. And and like I said, we're our our vision is to share. Um, what we've been working on in the last year with as many peaceful as possible in order to change minds so that the minds can can then change a heart. And, and am I optimistic about what's going to happen? Um, I uh, was raised in a home where you had to be optimistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, my father was a high school basketball coach, and we never went into a game thinking we were going to lose. And uh, I'm not certainly not going into this discussion. Uh, I, I, I'm very optimistic about what what can happen, and and it may not happen in in 2020, but it. it I, I assure you. I assure you, it will happen. I assure you of that. And uh, it's it's a matter of time. Right. Absolutely. Well, Lee and Barbara, we are coming to the end of our show. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, we ho- we hope that our, our listeners have gained a better understanding, and that you know, hopefully, some other United Methodists will will uh, get to experience this discussion uh, via the podcast that this show turns into on KZUM dot org um, after it airs. Um, thanks again for being with us. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Um, You've been listening to Counterbalance, a progressive Christian talk show hosted by me, Beth Menhusen, and my colleague, Richard Randolph. Uh, We've been discussing human sexuality from a progressive Christian perspective today, Um, but we'll have a new topic next week. Be sure to tune in on Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. for more of Counterbalance. That's right, Beth. In the meantime, we hope everyone has um, a great week, and uh, we'll, we'll catch you next Saturday.